John 10, verses 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Well, I, I trust all of us have friends. And thanks to Mark Zuckerberg, it's impossible not to have friends uh, through Facebook and such things. But it does kind of raise the question about what does it mean to be a friend? It's a word we throw in all the time. This is my friend. Uh, life has a way, though, of separating uh, this group of friends that we have. And we find out who our true friends are. And people that you thought were your good friends kind of get exposed. Uh, you talk to your friends, and but over time you realize there's that one friend that seems to only call you when, when they need something. But then there's that other friend, a good friend, who calls you because they sense that you really need them. And when you talk together, there's your friends talk casually back and forth, we kid with each other, but then you notice that there's one person that never is really kind to you and says really bad things to you. They just don't seem to care. And then there's that one friend who is kind, always. And then they do something that's very unusual. They actually listen to you. And you get the sense that they they care for you. You might find out that a group of friends got together and, and one of them was talking behind your back, saying really terrible things, perhaps passing on gossip. But then there was that good friend who who defended you and stood up for you. There's a friend that doesn't seem happy for you when something really wonderful happens, but then there's that good friend that rejoices with you. It's almost as if what happened to you happened to them. They enter into your 
your joy. And then when something really bad happens, that's when you really see the separation of these friends. The person who runs away, bells on you, doesn't want anything to do with you. Then there's that true friend who stands with you and walks with you, even makes sacrifices for you and for your your comfort to be there for you. Our Savior is doing something similar in this passage this evening. We're on Aaron. We especially want to go to verses 11 through 18. But in these opening verses, he begins to set up a contrast between what does the leader look like? And, of course, introducing this idea of, of a shepherd and sheep and the sheepfold. This is a very familiar word picture and, and theme and idea to his listening audience. And we know that throughout his ministry, there are times when it says that Christ had compassion upon the people like a sheep over, like a shepherd over the sheep. And we know this is a, a term that's used of leaders um, of Israel in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel. But Christ, as he introduces the idea, he wants to create some separation. What does a bad leader look like compared to a good leader? And so as we look at this familiar idea, I want to look at verses 1 through 6 and through 7 through 10. There's a distinction there in verse 6 that's made. And and we want to appreciate what Christ is is doing here to set up what comes in, in verse 11. In verses 1 through 6, he's talking about having access to the sheep. Who is it that that has access to the sheep? What's the way to them? And he begins by saying, well, it's obviously through the door. And what he has in view here is a sheepfold. A sheepfold would have been a walled enclosure with a gate in it. And it's a place where the shepherds would bring their, their sheep at night, perhaps more than one flock even, where they'd be protected and safe during the night for their safekeeping. And so he's saying that it's through that door that you have access. That's the way in which the shepherd enters. That's what a real shepherd does. But not everybody does it that way. He talks about the one who climbs in. He's trying to sneak in there, very suspicious looking. He says, that one is a thief and a robber. So already he's creating this, this distinction here. And who is it that has access? Well, verse 2, he says it's a shepherd. That's why the gatekeeper opens to him. He recognizes him. He knows him. And it's not just the gatekeeper who knows him. It's the sheep. They recognize that voice. They've heard that voice ever since they were little lambs. But in verse 5, there's the stranger. The sheep do not know his voice. It's irregular to them, perhaps even frightening to them. And, of course, that leads to two different results, doesn't it? In verse 3, the sheep hear uh, the voice of the shepherd. The shepherd calls out to him, out to them. He leads them. In verse 4, he, he brings them out into pasture. But in verse 5, it says, with regard to the stranger, they don't follow him. They run away from him. And so we see this contrast. But like ourselves, perhaps we're a little surprised by this, this kind of rushing into this, this metaphor and a little bit confused. It says the disciples were confused. And so verse 7 says he starts again. But in this, this time, instead of talking about having access to the sheep, he's talking about access for the sheep. This is from the sheep's perspective, no longer from a leader's perspective. And so he reiterates what he has said before about the door, but now he says that he is that door. And we have to recognize that this door, it's two ways. It's the way into, into safety, verses 1 through 6. Uh, it's a place of refuge and shelter for the sheep. But now it's a, it's a place of access to, to go out. It's a place in which the, sh- the leader, the shepherd, takes them out into, 
into pasture. So Christ is that door, he says, in verses 7 through 9. But in verse 8, he says, all who come before me, again, thieves and robbers. They're not there to lead them out to safety. That's not what's going on. And here we see the final conclusion and result of these, that he, the shepherd, does this, he says in verse 9, that the sheep would be saved. That they might go in and out. The regular stuff of life, going in and out. They would find pasture. That he says that they would have life in verse 10. And have that life in abundance. But the thieves and the robbers, why do they come? It's to hurt the sheep. To steal them. To kill them. To destroy them. So you can see what Christ has done. In both of these passages, he set up this strong contrast. It could not be more clear. It's very simple. Very accessible to us to understand what he's saying. But he does introduce something new that strikes us as perhaps very subtle. Uh, in verse 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd. And that's the first time he says this. He's been talking about him, him being the door and being the shepherd. And there are these, these others, strangers and thieves and robbers. But now he says, I am the good shepherd. And the reason perhaps that's subtle to us is because we live in a time when a word like good has very little meaning. And some sort of New Living Translation, that get the point across and say, I am the, the awesome shepherd, Right? I am the, 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 the great shepherd. I am the epic shepherd. I am the one who does sick shepherding. You know, something, something over the top, you know. And so we, we lose a word like good. But this is a really important word. And he is changing what he's saying, in a sense. He's, he is escalating it. He's, he's raising the bar for us. So we have to pause for a moment and, and know that in Scripture, the word good is important as an attribute of God. That goodness is is really one of the three branches of God's moral perfections. We think of his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness. And this is a word that's kind of broad, and it takes in underneath it. It's like an umbrella, and it takes in underneath it some really precious words in Scripture. And there are four of them, in particular, God's mercy and his grace and his patience and his love. Now, these are captured well in Exodus 34, 6. Remember, that Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, that's not going to happen, but I'll show you my goodness by declaring my name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you see, we have these attributes of, of goodness there. This is an important word in Scripture to describe who God is. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and you do good. And what the psalmist is saying, goodness is what God is, and goodness is what God God does. And so this is important, this umbrella term. It's it's from God's goodness that all of our happiness flows. Somebody said, like water flowing from a spring. To remind us that God is not just our highest good, he is the fountain of good. He is the, the source of every good thing we have in our life. And this word captures it. And just in case you think I'm overstating things, I remind you how in Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes up to Christ. How does he address him? He says, good teacher. And Christ says, stop. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. There's great significance to this term. He's not just a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. There's a reason why scripture tells us to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. So that's what I want us to focus on, that he's a good shepherd. 
But notice, in these verses, he continues the contrast. He continues the contrast between himself now. He's identified himself that he is, in fact, not just this door, not just this shepherd, but he is the good shepherd as opposed to the, the hired hand. Now, this comes out, it gets exposed in the face of danger. In verse 11, what happens when danger comes? He says in verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life. He throws himself before that danger. More specifically, he places himself between the sheep and the source of danger, the wolf here. But what does the hireling do? He sees the danger and he leaves the sheep. He runs away. The complete opposite of what the good shepherd does. And why do they do this? What's the motivation behind the shepherd and and the hireling? In verse 14, it's because he is a good shepherd. This is what a good shepherd does. And he says in verse 14, "I, I know my own, and my own know me. These are my sheep. I know each of their names. But why does the other do what he does? It's because he is a hired hand. He does not own the sheep. Verse 13, he cares nothing for the sheep. Of course, the results are, on the one hand, for the good shepherd, the sheep are saved. They're protected from that danger. But in verse 12, the wolf comes and snatches the sheep and scatters them. This is what it means to be good, to see a threat and throw yourself in its path. To, To surrender yourself in order to save someone else. In this case, it's a sheep. That when things get bad, this is what happens. The hireling flees, the, the good shepherd lays down his his life. Now, it reminds us of something else that said this, but perhaps you were thinking of it. In chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friend. Lay down his life for his his friends. And see, it tells us why the hireling flees. He doesn't care, doesn't own the sheep doesn't mean anything to him. It reminds us of me of several years ago when Carol and I were out shopping at Christmas. And when you have several kids and you've got very little time, you're just running from shop to shop. And we, we walked through the door of the shop 15 minutes before it said it was closing. The door had not even shut. And this young lady says, you're not going to buy anything, are you? I guess not. <laughs> Why would she say that? It wasn't her shop. She didn't own the shop. She didn't care. She just wanted us to leave so she could go. And the same is true here. The hireling doesn't own the sheep. He doesn't care for them. It's the very opposite of why the good shepherd stays. Why does he risk his life? Scripture tells us because he cares. He loves these sheep. They're his. He owns them. He's known them since birth. See, that's what it means to be a good shepherd, that he is literally a substitute. He lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life on behalf of the sheep. This is all for them to place himself in that dangerous position. Reminds me of of the book Through the Valley of the Kwai by Ernest Gordon. Here he talks about two people in this book that these men who are in a Japanese prisoner camp. And and the one was, I forget, English or an Aussie, I forget. His name was Ian Campbell. Uh, Colonel, Colonel Ian Campbell. And opposite of him was the chaplain, Dusty Miller, a Christian. And Dusty Miller was encouraging men to, to love Christ, to love their enemy, to be good Christians in this camp. And Ian Campbell was saying quite the opposite. 
But Ian Campbell tried to escape with three men, and they were caught. And they were brought before the Japanese commander of, of the camp to be executed, and, and he shot three of these, these men. But it, when it came to Ian Campbell, who he detested, he pulled out his, his sword, his samurai sword, to decapitate him. And just as he raised the sword, as Dusty Miller yelled out, Bushido. Bushido. Bushido is an ancient samurai code, an ancient code of the samurai warrior, which says, it's an honor for me to receive the punishment of my superior. And he knew that this Japanese commander would obey, and he did. And he pointed at Dusty Miller and said, you are free to go. To his shame, men died for him. But he knew this, this Dusty Miller was a Christian, so he ordered his men to beat him. And if he wanted to be like his Savior, he could die like his Savior. And they nailed him to a cross and lifted him up and left him to die. That's what it means to be a substitute. That's what it means to put yourself in the face of danger. And it, and it captures well that the death of Christ is not something reckless. This is not a blind death. This is a, a deliberate move on his behalf. He's sacrificing himself for a reason. It's, it's to save them. That what he does, he does for them. That's what scripture says. This is, this is how we define love. By sacrificing yourself. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That what he did, he did for us. And again, this defines what, what it means to be good, what it means to love. It means to sacrifice yourself, to give yourself. And that's how the scripture again and again, like a refrain, Describes Christ. Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And this is why we love Christ, is it not? That he did this for us? But we're not the only ones. Look at verse 17. This is why the Father loves His Son. That He laid down His life. No, it says more than that. That He laid down His life of His own accord. That's what Christ means, that no one takes it from Him. Jesus not only has the authority to lay it down, but He has the will to take it up. That He is determined to lay down His life. This is, this is His decision. As Philippians 2 says, it does not say that he was humbled. It says he humbled himself. This was of his own volition, that the Father gives the command in verse 18, but it's the Son who freely receives it as an equal. It's not forced upon him. There's no sort of external will that's imposed upon the Son. Nobody is forcing his hand. This is his desire, and he freely accepts it. He eagerly receives this responsibility, this, this choice. And you see, there's there's no difference between the will of the Father and the Son. They're in complete agreement on this. That Christ does this not out of mere duty. He does it out of devotion. This is why he's a good shepherd. But Jesus is a good shepherd for, for one more reason. And it has to do with the knowledge of a sheep. Look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. Now, Something like that was said earlier, and it goes on to say here that his own knows him. 
But I just want to think about that for a second, that, that he knows his own sheep. Now, there's comfort that's found here in this idea. We saw that in verse 4. There's comfort found in the fact that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. That brings him comfort. But here, verse 14, it's a shepherd who knows his sheep. But I want you to notice something. He quickly transitions in verse 15 what that knowledge is like. Look at verse 15. He knows the sheep. How? As the Father knows him and how he knows the Father. He's drawing a a comparison between he knows his sheep in a way that's similar to, at least, the way the Father knows him and he knows the Father. But what is that knowledge like? What What does that mean? That knowledge is exhaustive. That knowledge is is minute. What that means is that everything that can be known is known. This is a person of the Trinity, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, searching out what is inexhaustible. And when you take that kind of knowledge and you apply it to to the sheep, what what it says is, is he knows who they are, but it means so much more than that. It means he knows what they are. He knows everything about us. Every flaw. Every sin. All of your corruption. All of your folly. And your unrighteousness. Every evil thought and desire and choice. He sees all of it. What makes this even more interesting is we think of this contrast that he's been drawing all this time. This contrast between the good shepherd on the one hand versus the stranger and the thief and the robber who come to steal and kill and destroy in the hired hand. But notice this. Jesus makes no contrast between the sheep. He doesn't say they're good sheep and they're bad sheep. He does not say they're sheep that are, are worthy of him in his death and his sacrifice and ones that are not. They're all the same class. The only distinction he makes is between those sheep that he dies for and those that he does not. The Son knows everything about us. Nobody knows us better. No one sees more clearly just how bad it is. And yet, yet, armed with all this infinite knowledge, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's in light of this knowledge that he gives himself for us. Who thinks like this? When's the last time somebody came up to you and said, the more I know you, the more reasons I have to love you? Nobody has ever said that to me. The shepherd knows what he's sacrificing himself for. But the goal of that knowledge is to save us, not to condemn us. Not to bury us in crushing shame, which he could do. This is what makes him a good shepherd. But there's some really good news here, too, in verse 17 and following. That his death is not an end in itself. That death leads to a goal, not just our salvation. There's something else involved here in verse 17. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And it reminds us that the goal is not to die, it is to rise. He takes up what he lays down. That the work of Christ, we describe it as being in two states. There's 
the state of humiliation, the state of exaltation, that he, he dies in his humiliation and he rises in his exaltation, that Christ's Christ death, in one sense, is a means to an end. It's only the first stage of his victory over sin. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It takes both of these things, his death and his resurrection. And it reminds us that Christ doesn't die out of to just to be a mere example. He is not dying for some noble cause or for an idea or to make a point that Christ dies to purchase salvation. He suffers death in order to gain the victory over death. His death, he pays the debt. His resurrection, he purchases the inheritance. In his death, he removes the condemnation of sin. In the resurrection, he swallows up the sting of sin. He conquers in his death and he triumphs in his resurrection. And you see what this shows us is that Christ was committed to do everything necessary in order to procure our salvation. All of it. It required both his death and his resurrection. And he has the power to lay down his life, he says, and he has the power to raise it up. And he does. Why? That he might save us. That he might save us from the curse of our sin. And from the power of sin. And from the sting of sin. So that we might go in and out, that we might find shelter, that we might find pasture, that we would have life and have abundant life and and eternal life and every other benefit that we have by union with, with Christ. You see, he knows his sheep, which means he knows what they need. And so he makes us lie down in the green pastures of his word and sacrament. He brings us to the quiet waters of his spirit and and his truth in the joy of his peace and his presence. He restores our soul through the ministry and the comfort of of the spirit. We receive all these blessings of, of the grace of Lord Jesus Christ, both in this life, but also in the one to come. We read in Revelation 7, verse 17, So the Lamb... In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No one should be without a good friend. Everybody should have somebody. Who listens to them? Who stands with them? makes sacrifices for them, who cares for them. But if you do not have a good friend, well, tonight I have introduced you to Jesus Christ, a good shepherd and a friend of sinners. Let us pray.